talk smack and drink bourbon. I don't want to be Washington. It's not my intention to run over anybody, but I'm not going to let you abuse the process either. Welcome back, friends and listeners, to Bourbon in the Back Room. It is hard to believe, Joel Laurie, that we are starting our third season of Bourbon in the Back Room. 2023, we're in the thick of the legislative session. We've already had a great guest on the show, Speaker of the House, Merle Smith, our friend who was elected in that amazing year of 2000 when um, when I was also elected. And, uh, and we're going to have another great guest on the show. But in the meantime, Joel, a lot of things have been happening in the State House. Well, Vincent, before we talk about the Bourbon Briefs, join me in a toast. I have got a bottle of Garrison Brothers. It's got honey infused in it. And, you know, you mentioned three years. That's three years of me drinking bourbon on top of the wine I drink. <laughs> well, and the fact that you never drank bourbon <laughs> until right. we started the show. So, We're doing well. Uh, cheers. And, Joel, I had another little bit of news I wanted to share with our listeners. It might not be exactly South Carolina related, but it's to our neighbor to the north, my friend Josh Stein. The I current, remember him. He, yes. we, you actually had me host a fundraiser for him, the uh, Attorney General of North Carolina. I did. And speaking of that, he called me today and asked if you would host another. And I told him, of course you would. <laughs> thank you. For, on behalf of the Lurries, thank you for spending our money, Vincent. You'll remember Josh and I got to be friends. We were both Rodell Fellows in uh, in Aspen, Colorado, back in the early 2000s. And when I ran for governor, he helped me greatly. He was a legislator. Uh, in the North Carolina House and then a senator. Anyway, Josh is uh, is a wonderful guy, and I'm excited to see him run for governor of North Carolina. All right, let's jump into Bourbon Briefs. So, Vincent, a big event happening this Saturday. I'm sure you're scheduled to be at the State House. Uh, the former president, Donald Trump, is wow. hosting an event. Um, he will be joined by our senior senator, Lindsey Graham. Surprise, surprise. Our governor, Henry McMaster, who was the first yes. public official, I think, in the nation to endorse Donald Trump, but here's what's interesting. Which led to him becoming governor. Which led to, and explain to our listeners how that happened. That's because when they asked, well, this is, of course, hearsay, but I know it to be true. When they, <laughs> when uh, Donald Trump's folks asked Henry McMaster what he wanted as his reward for being the first statewide elected official to endorse him, he said, I want you to please get rid of the current governor. That was Nikki Haley. And so that I can become governor. And, of course, um, they worked out where uh, Governor Haley was able to leave and go work in the UN, and Henry McMaster became governor. So it's been interesting because I've been talking to some Which is kind of cool if you think about it, because most people would have said, I want to be some grand poobah on the federal government or yeah. get some big national position. And Henry said, I want to be governor. I want you to take Nikki <laughs> Haley to Washington. Okay, but that, that chicken is coming home to roost, and we're going to talk about that uh, in a second. But what's interesting about that is that I am told by friends of mine in the General Assembly who are Republicans— that, that there are a lot of people holding back their commitments right now. You've got two very prominent South Carolinians on the national stage. We just mentioned former governor, former ambassador Nikki Haley, and Tim Scott is making his rounds around yeah. the country. Well, so. I remember when Donald Trump ran the first time, a lot of elected South Carolina Republicans held back on giving their endorsements, but they all sure fell in line pretty quickly once they saw where the regular Republicans out there in the state were going. Well, you know what my friend Senator Daryl Jackson says, don't you? Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Right. Okay, speaking of Nikki Haley, Vincent, let me play a clip for you. She was on Sean Hannity recently, and um, as I have been predicting for some time on this show— I think we're only weeks away from a big announcement. Here she is in her own words. As fun as it would be to announce right now. Um, yes, we are. I just got rejected. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. 
we are leaning in. I yep. mean, look, it is time for a new generation. It is time for more leadership. It is time for the fact that we really start to take our country back. We cannot have another term of Joe Biden. And we have to remember, too, we have lost the last seven out of eight popular votes for president. It is time that we get a Republican in there that can lead and that can win a general election. So Vincent, the future savior of the Republican Party, former Governor Ambassador Nikki Haley, what do you think? She is definitely saying all the right things and making all the right moves to challenge Donald Trump in the Republican primary. What happens here in this pivotal primary state? Donald Trump wins the, the nomination in South Carolina. Wow. What Absolutely. a prediction. Un, what? No question about it. Yeah, well, I— And it might be a plurality. Yeah. You know, it might be like last time I think he got 40 percent, and the, the next highest was maybe 20. I don't know. I'm making those numbers up. But, but um, listen, if you're out there outside of the bubble that Haley occupies of kind of the elite Republicans, um, you know, people out there in the boonies and in the country and, and the regular voter on Lake Watery, who's a Republican, you is still flying the Trump Kershaw flag. County, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Still flying the Trump flag. Yeah, I, I don't know that I disagree with you, but it is kind of interesting. Well, I, I was talking with a, a friend of mine who, uh, actually, I was talking with a, a top staffer in, with one of our congressmen, uh, and they asked me what I thought, and I, I told them that, and they said, huh. We, I'm surprised. And I said, well, look, the Republicans that you talk to, Mr. Top Staffer, and the Republicans that I talk to, yeah, they, they're going to not be voting for Donald Trump. But guess what? They're a distinct minority in the Republican Party. Well, I, I can tell you this. Last time when he ran, which was 2016, you had people for, um, who's the little guy from Florida, Rubio. Yeah. You had people for the Bush. government. Uh, Bush, yeah. you had people from the former Lindsey Graham Ohio. had terrible things to say about Donald Trump. And where is Lindsey Graham going to be next week, did you tell me? Uh, right next to Donald yeah, Trump. Okay. okay, all right. Let's turn it to South Carolina. Just last night, our governor gave his uh, State of the State address. And, and Vincent, you may recall, in my 18 years of public service, I attended you were, every state of the— You were was, a responsible state senator and House member. Well, I will admit to that I, because you felt like it was your obligation and duty. Right. I didn't go back home and go to sleep like you did. Well, of okay. course, you live, you know, <laughs> 10 minutes from the state house. But the only time I didn't go is when my twin nephews were born that night. Well, but, rightly um, so. Absolutely. But he had something—you know, we played this clip last week. Does that mean that you actually now watch it on TV? No, I just pulled the clip. I okay. <laughs> just want to make sure. Are you kidding me? I was watching the Gamecock basketball team get throttled last night by Florida. Okay, but um, are you? But 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 he said something. Remember at his um, inauguration speech, he started talking about changing the way judges are picked. And I want to play a clip for you and our listeners because he took a giant step forward last night, Senator Sheen. Here we go. Governor McMaster, State of the State. South Carolina is one of two states in which the General Assembly selects the members of the judiciary. It appears that the confidence in this arrangement is waning. Speaking to members of the General Assembly, Governor Henry McMaster says South Carolina should look to how the federal government picks its judges. Gubernatorial appointment of all judges with the advice and consent of the Senate requires no reinvention of the wheel, will inspire the confidence of our people, and will incur, encourage more excellent attorneys to seek public service. We should do that. So, Vincent, um, I assume that was the 46 senators that were clapping? Because <laughs> what do you think the I'm 124 assume, members of the House No, I'm assuming it was the people in the audience that Henry had invited to the— Some of the people at the gallery. <laughs> yeah, 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 the gallery yeah. What invited. do you think about that, though? Uh, I think that if you just think of the logic of that, you'll understand how crazy it is. Think of the, quote, confidence people have in the federal judiciary right now because they don't. 
mm-hmm. because they think the presidential appointees are highly political and highly partisan, and they rule based on the party uh, that nominated them, the, the party affiliation. Contrast that with our state judges where they have to build a coalition of Democrats and Republicans to be elected, and partisan people rarely get elected to judge in South Carolina. Just the logic of saying the federal system is somehow builds confidence and works better is pretty crazy. The alternative to that— Wasn't that the same guy that said, we don't need Washington in South yeah, Carolina? Yeah, that's so yeah. funny. He's okay. saying, let's do what the feds do. <laughs> the other alternative to that is even worse, which is popular election, which means no, that— we don't want that here. —that uh, judges go and raise money, and they run as a partisan, and you know they basically get the big companies and, and rich lawyers get them elected. Um we probably have the worst system except for every other system. Yeah. No, there's no easy way to do this. But but what's interesting to me, Vincent, and just to remind our listeners, 170 members of the legislature elect these judges. Right. 124 House members and 46 senators, which means even though a senator represents three times the number of people as a House member, that House member's vote counts just as much as a senator. And I can tell you, I think there was a time where somebody ran— because when we have these elections, they do the roll call of the Senate vote, got almost all the senators and still lost the election. Because sure. these elections can be won and lost in the House, right? It's true. But, you know, there's a, a, a difference in, in structure and power in state government. For example, only the senators vote on the confirmations of the gubernatorial nominees. Sure. So in that sense, senators have all the power in the General Assembly related to gubernatorial nominees, and the House members have none. But And remind our listeners who voted for Catherine Templeton at D. Heck, yeah, who, who, did? who is that? <laughs> That's, right. That's where we're at now. Who is that? All right. Well, thanks to Mary Green at WIS-TV for allowing us to share that clip. The response to the State of the State last night, Vincent, came from our old friend, Ronnie Saab. Let me play a quick clip from Senator Saab. He and I were texting this morning, and just what a great guy. And I was just so happy to see him give the response. Senator Ronnie Saab. Ladies and gentlemen, the Republican leadership in the South Carolina legislature has made it clear that two issues will be taken up, the debate of which will significantly impact how we live in our state. Your elected officials will debate over a woman's right to health care and spend tax dollars for private purposes. So, Vincent, uh, Senator Saab just laid out the really two primary concerns he has with the Republican agenda this year, that being um, a woman's right to choose. And and we've talked a lot about your favorite issue, abortion. And then, of course, um, school vouchers using public tax money to help fund educations in private or religious schools. Um, Ronnie Sab, you've served with him. Tell our listeners about Ronnie Sab. Well, Ronnie was my sweet mate in the South Carolina Senate. I loved having Ronnie in the same office as, as me. He's just a good and honorable man. We need to get him on the show, Joel. We need to get him on the show. Uh, Ronnie is brilliant, well-spoken, does not take the floor a lot, but when he does, people listen. Uh, and he's just, a, and he's also an amazing lawyer, by the way, uh, from over in, down in Williamsburg County. Uh, it was interesting that he was tasked with the response to the governor. It's it's kind of a thankless task, truthfully. It used to be that it was kind of— You and I have both done we it. We did. Right? And it yeah. used to be like when we first did it, it was kind of high-profile— um, but as interest in state government and coverage of state government has waned, you know, just a lot of people don't watch it. But Ronnie did an excellent job and I think was a a good uh, person to have uh, respond to Governor McMaster because Governor McMaster is a polite, 
uh, gentleman and, and, you know, generally is not out attacking people and Ronnie's the same way. Yeah. Ronnie's not going to attack him, but he yeah. did draw a nice parallel. And, and what I love most about Ronnie Sab is watching him school Thomas McElroy <laughs> on basketball court. <laughs> Thomas gets his feelings hurt unless we just say nice things about him. Apparently. Uh, but anyway, all right, moving right along. The governor's talked about wanting to change the way judges are picked because they have all this angst over the three to two ruling where the Supreme Court ruled that a, a woman a woman's right to, to, to privacy um, is jeopardized at six weeks. We had Merle Smith on. We talked about why not just put a constitutional amendment. Um, and then, as you know, there's an election coming about with the state Supreme Court, and there's only one candidate left standing. The two women dropped out. And Senator Sin had some things to say from the floor of the Senate yesterday. What you may not know is that South Carolina is about to become the only state in the entire nation to not have a female Supreme Court judge. And that is embarrassing. It is more embarrassing to me than us being at the bottom of the state with education or having lawyers that don't even understand the separation of powers. So, Vincent, South Carolina will soon become the only state in the country that does not have a female Supreme Court justice. And Sandy Sin had a lot to say about that yesterday. We only played a few seconds of the clip, but what does that say about our state? First, let me say, Joel, uh, Judge Gary Hill, who is going to become the next state Supreme Court justice, is an amazing guy, an amazing judge. Agree. Very much a moderate uh, and just a wonderful human being. He'll do a great job. That being said, it is actually kind of mind-boggling to think that we will not have a female Supreme Court justice. Uh, only state in the country. Only state in the country. Females make up uh, a majority of the law school classes in South Carolina, uh, about an equal number of attorneys in the state, um, and plenty of judges who are, are women in South Carolina. Actually, South Carolina's done a decent job of electing women. Uh, we had a super- mostly at the family. I've done some research. Mostly at the family court level, but, that number tends to diminish when we go to circuit court, and so it does. But but even recently on the circuit court, you've seen more women being elected. Um, it's not an accident. Two women were running along with Judge Hill. Um, we had a chief judge, Judge Justice Gene Toll, who was um, who was the chief judge for a while, and Kay Hearn, who was one of the prominent members recently. So I think. Sadly, and unfortunately, the Supreme Court coming out with that opinion right before this race was extremely unfortunate and probably dictated the outcome of the race. Otherwise, I believe you would have seen a woman elected. Yeah, and as you know, um, based on everything we've heard, um, even from some of our guests, that there was a a lot of grilling taking place of these three candidates um, about what their position may or may not be in abortion. It just sets up a situation where— this looks like a litmus test, and I, I it's just unfortunate. Think, Which we'd avoided through legislative election for all these years. Yeah, so. and it just feels like it's it's um, I don't know. It just has a very bad yes, feel. To I agree. It. So, all right, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. I am with a really good friend of mine. She's the vice president of the Group and Individual Division at Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, Stephanie DeFreeze. Hello, Stephanie. Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Isn't it true, Stephanie, that when the changes came about during the Affordable Care Act, Blue Cross Blue Shield is the only company that has been here from the beginning and has stayed the course offering health insurance to hundreds of thousands of individuals and families in South Carolina? 
Yes, that is exactly right. And in fact, with the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the state and stable pricing, we continue to see more and more people choosing Blue Cross for their health insurance. Plus, Joel, as you know, all of our customer service is done right here in South Carolina. And I think people like that fact that they are working with someone local who can assist them. That is awesome. Stephanie, thank you for being here and thank Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina for being a sponsor of Bourbon in the Background. All right, Vincent, we're back. Um, wrapping up Bourbon Breeze right now. Um, this issue, we talked a lot about it last year, death penalty. Yeah. And they're, you know, 40 or 50 inmates um, scheduled for execution sitting on death row. They can't be executed. Tell our listeners why and what's happening in the state house. So, Joel, as you'll recall, last year, uh, the South Carolina General Assembly passed a bill uh, that would allow the use of the electric chair, which has not been used in, in a long time, or alternatively, shooting people in the head. So the court blocked that, uh, and people can probably understand why, which then meant that the old way, or the, the way that was supposed to be used, which was a, uh, a chemical execution, essentially, you took uh, gave the lethal injection. Lethal right. injection, uh, and and the reason why the whole debate got started in the first place, Joel, is that companies no longer want to sell uh, the chemicals that have to be used for lethal injection. The reason they don't want to sell them is because the public brings pressure to bear on them, and so South Carolina hasn't been able to buy the drugs. And and as you know, Brian Sterling, who heads up corrections, yeah. who I think might be an interesting guest on this yeah, show. I'd love by to the have. Way. We were tough, in law school together. Brian's toughest a great job guy. in state government, I think. Very um, difficult. Um, has been, you know, <clears throat> trying to get this legislation passed. In you know, in, in his words, this really isn't about whether you're for or against the death penalty. It's the law of the land right now, and we've got people um, sitting on death row. It'll be interesting to see where this lands and where the Supreme Court lands on some of these other ways it, to execute inmates. It will, Joel, but I think it's worth stopping to note, you know, when you and I were younger in the 70s and 80s, uh, I just remember there being so much public debate and pressure about the death penalty and, and, and Franklin, South Carolina, support for it. And now I don't sense from the public that they care one bit whether these people just rot to death on death row or get put to death. Just doesn't seem to be a real compelling issue that anybody has really worked up about. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Brian Sterling would like to make it so that those companies, uh, their names aren't disclosed. It's not public where the chemicals come from. I always voted against that. I felt like in, in this ultimate, uh, step, Era of transparency. Yeah. Well, right? in this ultimate step, the state takes everything should be as transparent as possible. Who knows where it goes? I would predict that not a lot happens and these people rot to death on death row. All right. So Vincent, um, kind of heading towards the end of Bourbon Briefs, uh, there was a great article by Alexander Thompson in the Post and Courier last week, Party Like It's 1832, and a group of, um, um, I guess, Freedom Caucus House members. There's Representative Josiah Manganson. Do you know him, Vincent? Uh, you know, I can't say I know him. I did serve for a little while. He was there. He was always very polite to me, Joel. <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're wanting to pass some sort of um, piece of legislation that would allow South Carolina to um, nullify uh, certain federal acts. And in Joel, his own words, what? been there, <laughs> done that. Andrew, Jackson, to paraphrase Andrew Jackson, president of the United States, who was born in South Carolina, I will hang the first traitor from a tree. Yeah, we. In his own words, Representative Mag Magnuson says we have to do as our 
forebearers did and reject tyranny. It's an effort to push back against the overreach of federal power. So would this be like what a constitutional amendment or what would this be, Vincent? Joel, this idea of nullification started back well before the Civil War. Our very own John C. Calhoun helped develop the concept. He was literally stared down uh, by our other South Carolinian president, Andrew Jackson. But the Civil War was fought over this issue, so who wants to deal with it again? Well, here's what the bill does. The bill would bar the state government from using its resources to implement any federal act unless the state's legislative council, made up of legislative leaders, and the attorney general ruled them constitutional. So we would have this group of uh, local Overseers. South Carolinians deciding whether something's constitutional or not. I don't see that passing. Vincent, <laughs> before we take a break and introduce our guests, um, want to a, say a quick word. Um, our prayers and thoughts are, are with the family of former state senator and congressman Arthur Ravenel, um, who just passed away last week's um, Senator Congressman Ravenel actually served with my dad. He was affectionately known as Cousin Arthur. <laughs> and um, I'll never forget, Vincent, he went to Congress, yeah, and he came back and and rejoined the South Carolina Senate. And my dad said, Arthur, why did you do that? He said, look, when I went to Congress, I quickly realized there's no better job in public service than being a South Carolina state senator. Well, that, that says it all, Joel. And it, it reminds me of when I was elected, he was—, he was um, briefly there just was just had just left there but you uh, people like him they were so colorful and interesting Kay Patterson was there John, John Land, Land Bill Branton Glenn McConnell John Drummond John Drummond these yeah. people were pretty amazing giants they were and and you know no offense to me or you but um we're pretty boring yeah well <laughs> speak for yourself but anyway we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back to introduce our guests Vincent, tell our listeners about the new feature we're doing this year. Joel, I'm so excited. We're doing remote broadcasts for Bourbon in the Back Room. Folks, if you have a trade association or a large group or people that are just interested in politics, we would love to come to you and put on our show. It's a lot of fun. You'd love to see it live. If you're interested, just email us at Bourbon in the back room at gmail.com and we'll let you know how it works. And we do weddings and bar mitzvahs too. <laughs> <laughs> For an extra fee. <laughs> Joel, I'm so excited to have back a friend from our days in the South Carolina Senate. Seems from the like back a, row of this One Senate. of the back row boys. Yeah. Seems like a long time ago now. Uh, and of course, he started on the back row with us and uh, people couldn't remember his name, although I will say that we used to get confused for each other, uh, <laughs> which may that. be more of a compliment to me than him. Nevertheless, uh, we've had he's a repeat guest. We're thrilled to have Shane Massey, the Republican majority leader, uh, back on the show. And for listeners that may not recall, Shane is from Edgefield County, so a small county, also represents a good chunk of Aiken and also a few other counties. We'll let him talk about that, especially all the way into Lexington. Uh, but Shane now, he was elected in 2007 in a special election, had to get reelected shortly thereafter. Uh, and you'll remember that he became majority leader a while ago now. So I, I, we'll, we'll look forward to talking to Shane about what's changed in the South Carolina Senate, what he sees happening this year, and, um, and what's going on with Shane Massey himself. So Shane, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me back. Vincent, you know, I really thought you were going to tell the story about 
my newborn daughter <laughs> seeing you seeing you on television and saying, Daddy. <laughs> it was yeah. a great compliment. Let me tell you. Yeah, um, there, there were a lot of questions being asked yeah, about was, that. <laughs> and of well, course, he does have a wonderful wife. And, and of course, <laughs> Joel would intentionally confuse the pages uh, by telling them that we were each other. So that was that was even better. Well, yeah. well Shane, when I was uh, going over your bio, um, and, and I've I've known what a hard worker you were at the state house. And I also know that when the races you've won, you had to be a hard worker back home. But Vincent, did you know that my friend Shane Massey has had 130 town hall meetings across his district in 16 years? I saw that. I saw that in preparation for the show. And I had this just overwhelming feeling of pity for him because <laughs> I, I can think of nothing worse than sitting in 130 town hall meetings. I will say this, Shane, that's 130 more than I had. <laughs> Joe went to neighborhood associated meetings. That's it's right. actually probably a higher number now. In fact, I've got one tonight, uh, as a matter of fact, in, in Graniteville. So looking forward to that. Tell the folks in Graniteville we said hello. I used to like getting over there. They're good people. Yeah. Tell us about your district because, you know, I mean, yeah. I had it easy. I had Richland County, a little bit of Kershaw. You've got several counties. That I got you five. Have. Yeah, I got five. So it's um, I, and I think geographically, it's the largest of any Republican in the Senate. Um, you know, the, the larger ones are typically well, they are they're, they're the they're really rural districts. Um, so you'll have a few of the rural rural Democrats have like five or six counties, but I've got five, and that's mostly because it's it's very rural. But I've got Edgefield, have part of Aiken. Part of Lexington, part of Saluda, part of McCormick. It's um, it's a big territory geographically. Well, Shane, uh, and for our listeners to remind them, the reason that occurs and it's gotten only worse is because the U.S. Supreme Court in the '60s said uh, that uh, Senate districts had to reflect the population within them. Did you realize that our state constitution actually still says there is supposed to be one senator from each county? And I'm wondering, with the U.S. Supreme Court willingness to revisit. Uh, controversial precedent if it might not be time to revisit that and try to empower these rural counties again. I don't know. It might be a good new case for you to take on. That's what I was thinking, uh, too. Uh, that, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, Is there enough money in it for me? Yeah. <laughs> I can do some But, you know, for – well, and as you know, because you represented um, rural South yes. Carolina as well, and, and, and often you and I were teaming up on rural versus urban issues. Um, but for, for rural South Carolina – especially some of these counties that just get divided up, yeah. it is very hard for them to have someone in Columbia who can speak for them. If you've got a small county that's, you know, 20,000 people and you've got three or four senators representing portions of that county, I mean, the, the reality is is that none of those senators have to care too much. Right. If you wanted exactly. to ignore it, you could. Uh, now, I, I don't. That's where I'm of from. Course. And I think there are a lot of other people who, who work very hard at that as well. And I'm not suggesting anybody ignores it, but I think the counties are sensitive to that. They are. And of course, there's nothing like your own hometown people as far as who you really care about. As, as much as I love looking out for Chesterfield County and Lancaster County, you know, honestly, Camden was always first. Yeah. All right, Shane, um, if I remember correctly, your children, w- was Blair pregnant when you first ran? Is that right? Or you, were your children born either during the campaign or once you started serving? How old are your kids now? My, uh, I have a 14-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son. Both of them were born in election years. And Blair, <laughs> and Blair told me she's not doing that. Been again. there, done that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, so when I first ran in the special in 2007, um, she was not pregnant. But in 2008, 
um, just before I had to run again because right, you know right, the term sure. the, the term was and for up. For our listeners, he ran in a special election in 2007. Tommy Moore, who had had that seat for 20 years plus, um, ran for governor against Mark Sanford in 2006. Right. lost, and then left his position in the Senate to go work in the private sector. Joel, another fact that our listeners may not recall or may not know is that Shane Massey had a brief run for the U.S. Congress. And Shane, I was thinking about this the <laughs> that other day. That was very brief. Yeah. It was. But think about this. Like, it was that was in the late 2000s, I think. 2006. It was the 2010 election. Okay, 2010. Shane Massey very well, if he'd have been elected, could have been the Speaker of the House in the U.S. Congress this last time around. I mean, look at the competency of the people there and um, and look at the terms before they usually get elected to the high leadership position. That wouldn't have surprised me at all. Shane, the luckiest thing that happened to you was that you didn't finish that campaign for Congress. Look, look, I, told, I, I told a lot of people after that, that that one of the best decisions that I made was getting into that race because um, I enjoyed getting around the state yeah. and meeting people and you know meeting a lot of sure. new people, learning things. But an even better decision was deciding not to do it, getting out of it. it, it um, you know, The longer that went on, the less interest I had in – and in, in living in Washington, and I w- I was not at that point. I had a newborn daughter who was just two wow. two yeah. years old, and and I was not going to be an absent father. So um, getting out of that, especially upon reflection now, everything that's going on, I'm glad I'm not there. So whose seat is that? Is that Jeff Duncan? <laughs> Jeff yeah. Duncan, and Jeff does a great job for me, so I'm happy he's there and not me. I remember sitting. We were on the back row talking to you and West Donahue about that. And not that they were seeking advice from me. Wes has been a guest on the show. Which didn't stop me from giving my opinion. And I just said, Shane, dude, you just got here, man. And um, I'm so glad you made that decision for you and for South Carolina and for your family. Tell us what the job of the Senate Majority Leader is. (laughs) It's the, uh, as the former Senate Majority Leader Harvey Peeler would say it's the chief cat herder, (laughs) Uh, which, uh, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work, right? I mean, it's, um, it's a lot of work to try to keep up with everybody and to make sure uh, you have an idea of where people are on issues. And and then I, I've been a little more um, more engaged with it too, so that I'm I'm very involved on the floor and trying to help keep run run the floor on on issues and try to move things along. But I mean, there's a lot of work. Well, Joel and and Shane, my observation when I was there, it was already emerging. And of course, I haven't been there in two years, so I'm sure it's continued. The majority leader is a is is a partisan leader. You know, you are the head of the majority party. And typically in the Senate, that's all it was. You know, you would try to shepherd your Republicans in one direction and you would try to win on issues. But my observation of you is that you grew the role into somewhat of an institutional role. So, for example, uh, in the motions periods, motions now, at least when I left, they look to you to make the motions, whereas before they might have looked to the president pro tem of the Senate. Um, you, I believe, maybe have some appointment powers to, to conference committees or you consult with whoever about that. Um, it seems like you've taken on more of an institutional role that is not just partisan. It speak to that. Is that is that a correct observation or not? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, and I'll say this too. You know, one of the first things that I did um, when I became majority leader is I reached out to Nikki Setzler, Senator Nikki Setzler, who at the time was a Democratic leader. Who is now, by the way, the longest right. serving state senator in America. Yeah. What a great, we got to get Nikki on the show. And you know, and he's close to being the longest state senator in South Carolina history. So he, he is Mary very Gressett close is to, the, to Senator Gressett. Um, and so, and he served with Senator Gressett. Think about that. That's wild. That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, that's cool. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the first things I did was I reached out to Senator Sessler and I said, look, we need to talk, man. And so Senator Sessler, very gracious, very, you know, very nice guy. Uh, but but we established um, a relationship where we were talking every week. Uh, I mean, we would meet physically every week before a session. And, and, and I also tried to be very, very direct and straight. Look, here's what we're probably going to try to do this week. Because as part of the majority, you get to set the agenda mostly. So here's where we're headed. Because I don't, I didn't like getting surprised, and right. I didn't want to surprise him. I wanted everybody to be on the same page with that. And and now, you know, I was, I was disappointed when Senator Setzler stepped down from being the Democratic leader. But I have a good relationship with Senator Hutto as well, and we talk, and um, we're we're doing well. How well, many? What's the spread now? Is it thirty to sixteen? It is. Well, that and that was something I want to address with you when you got there. You know, the body was actually pretty closely divided between Republicans and Democrats. One of the reasons your seat you ran for was so hotly contested was it was held by a Democrat. It was a swing district. Um, now the numbers aren't even close. How has that changed the Senate in your time? It, it's changed considerably from when, when I was first elected. I mean, Because I'll tell you this. You know, I've told lots of people before that when I was first elected, um, most of the Democrats in the Senate would not have fit in very well in Washington. Right. Um, and I think now we have a number of other, a number of Democrats now who would fit in in Washington. And perhaps the same is true of the Republicans who were there. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I, and I would have said that next. I yeah. mean, I think well, what's happened is that both sides seem to have shifted a little bit mm-hmm. more away from the center. Um, so I think that has changed. Um, now, I think since the 2020 elections, when when it became a 30 to 16 split, that's changed a lot of things too. And, and it was more, so before that it was 27, 19, it's 30, 16 now. Um, but the change was more than just flipping three seats. The changes, it, it really did change the governing philosophy in the body. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's had an impact because, you know, as when y'all were there, there were a lot, there were several Republicans who had been elected as Democrats. Sure. Right? right, in the 80s and 90s, and then they switched parties in the 1990s or the early 2000s to survive. Um, and th- th- those folks are kind of moving out. You could you respects. could run the table with that group of Republicans and the rest of the Democrats. Because you had 19 Democrats, as you said, so all you needed was five Republicans. Well, it also allowed the Democrats to ensure that they're more extreme or liberal members didn't get out of on a limb because they had a, a reason to try to bring them toward the center to build a, a governing coalition. And it, it, but it wasn't a governing coalition. It was a coalition that sometimes worked, sometimes didn't. You know, Shane sat on the back row with us um, for a number of years. Was and he the guy that used to attack leadership who's now in leadership? <laughs> you know, I did that when I got there too. So, well, but my point is, <laughs> but my point is like we worked on the same issues together. We were yeah. able to do that. Yeah. No, that's, that's right. And I, and I try to, I think that's still important uh, that you that you listen and and that you try to work with people. And because still, look, a, a lot of the issues, and this surprises people lots of times, but a lot of the issues, the breakdown are not traditional partisan right. breakdowns. The, the issue, many times, the breakdown is still rural versus urban, or the coast versus everyone else. And frankly, with the coast getting more and more population, that's even more of an issue. True. Well, we've seen that more now. I hear you say. Even though that's still true, there are now more partisan breaks down than there would have been there 10 are, years ago. There are some, and frankly, some of that comes from the 30 to 16 right, split right, right. too. 
Um, but that that does happen. And, and and you know, I think a lot Washington trickles down. Yeah, absolutely. Well, people and, only only look at Washington politics. They rarely know what you're doing in the state house. That, that's right. right. You know, I remember you telling me yeah. from from the gubernatorial runs that you want to go around and talk to people about state issues, and they don't care about that. Yeah. They want to talk about what they saw going on all, in Washington. All politics right? is national. Yeah. So that's a real that, that does have a real impact on us as well. But I will say this: I do think that the Senate is still less traditionally partisan than what you find in the House. Yeah, we do a very good job of trying to trying to work together. Um, and as I told as I told everybody on the first day of session in 2021 when we adopted the new rules, I don't want to be Washington. It's not my intention to run over anybody, but. I'm not going to let you abuse the process either. Sure. So, so and sometimes you know I get guys on my side who who get don't they get very impatient. They want they're to anxious. try to move they things wrong. They want to done a good job of of restraining what could just be a raw exercise of power every moment that the Republican Party is in the body. But you still get what you believe are important. And look, when Democrats aren't close, frankly, there's no reason or excuse for that not to occur. So I think you've to, to uphold decorum and process is a pretty major accomplishment. Yeah, and you want to keep the tradition of the Senate. Yeah. Let's jump right into the session. We played yeah. a clip earlier in our bourbon briefs last night. The governor gave, was that his six? I think it was his 12th, but I'm not sure. No, I mean, what state? <laughs> no, he was giving, I don't know, whatever. He gave his state of the state address. His 23rd state of the state address. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, though, Senator Massey, um, one interest issue that we've talked a little bit about is this concept of changing the way we elect judges. And he has, you know, for the guy that ran, we don't want to bring Washington to Columbia. He wants to adopt the Washington model, which a lot of states have. I'm just teasing with him. But but does that have any traction? He wants to appoint the judges and let the Senate confirm them like you do cabinet heads. Are our friends in the House even going to entertain that notion? No, you know, I, I was I was interested in that. I, I kind of chuckled when he said it because last year we had a, a pretty intense conversation about the Senate having confirmation power for the uh, the, the state election commission yes, director. Yes, that's exactly and, right. And, and and I was accused of a power grab <laughs> um, from that. And then last night he offered the power grab, I guess. <laughs> but, but but look, I, I do think they're going to be they're going to have to be changes to the way that we elect judges because there are too many people now who think that it's not transparent, it's not open. Uh, and there are a number of ideas on that. But I think it's important to remember this. One, our way of electing judges with the legislature is constitutional. Absolutely. Right? It's yeah. in the Constitution. Right. And so to have a pro- program like what the governor outlined or what, <clears throat> what Washington follows would require a constitutional amendment, which first would require two-thirds vote in each body, and I think that's a difficult sell. Yeah. But then there, you know, th- there are drawbacks to that too, right? You get a much more political political body. I mean, look at our federal courts. Um, they are losing confidence every day, and it just kind of depends on who's not in office as, right. to, as, as to which side's when losing confidence. When they report in the newspaper decisions by judges, they now say who appointed them who appointed as if them. to say that's why they decided what they decided. That's right. And so I don't want that to happen yeah. here. Uh, I'll, I think, frankly, that having judges popularly elected, as we see in some of our sister states, some of our neighboring states— but you don't have to look very far to see the problems that come yeah. from that well, either. Sure. Fundraising, all that corruption. Kind of yeah. You know, yeah. the other I teach this class at USC. I think you've spoken at it maybe Shane once or twice. Um, and I had a student do a paper on on election messages, and they point election methods for the judiciary, and they pointed out something I never thought about. 
which is actually legislative elections probably provide the most openness and transparency of any selection because, of course, a, a gubernatorial appointment is just done in the back room with the campaign donors and whoever. But the legislative elections are done in public. They're public votes. They are screened and vetted in public. And Shane, perhaps that's where some of the improvement could be, though, which is on the Merit Selection Commission, making sure that these people are um, selected in an open and transparent and honest way. Is that something that the legislative uh, folks would look at? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, there's there's been a lot of conversation. There's been a lot of conversation about this for several years, sure. frankly. So it wasn't um, just this most recent Supreme Court. No, yeah, and that's no, what no. everybody's. Paying attention to right, sure, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. and I and I get that, but but this is something that really has been brewing for a while. Now, I think probably the recent Supreme Court opinion and and the election that's coming on its heels, sure. those things combined <clears throat> um, probably gave more um, more fuel to it. Yeah, to, to makes that sense. Movement. But yeah. this is something people have been talking about for a while. But it's going to have to be something, Vincent. That people, you're right. It is open, but. There are concerns that it's not as open as right. it should be. Right, and perhaps and, and, it's got less open than it was even 10 years ago. And I think ago. that's that's one of the problems yeah. as well. And, and plus, you know, the way that this the system is set up is that Judicial Merit Selection Commission, they screen, and they screen based on qualifications, based on, you know, conflicts of interest, financial improprieties, things like that. But then no matter how many candidates are there and no matter how many candidates are qualified for the position— they get to pick three yeah, that they want to push out. Allowed any uh, candidate found qualified to be. I actually to run. broke up a fight one time, truly a fight between Jerry Govan and Jim Harrison. Remember that? Like yeah, 2000- well, Jerry had several of those fights. Yeah, because <laughs> Jerry. <laughs> no, I mean, this is a true story. I know. I'm Scott Talley and I asked Senator Talley about this. We were in the judiciary, we were both House members, and we heard all this. Furniture being thrown around, and somebody goes, "Oh, they're going to kill each other." And we run in there and open up the door, and Jerry Govan had Jim Harrison clutched by the throat. Jim's all of his buttons had popped off of his shirt, and um, Ben, what was his name? Ben, somebody I forgot. Yeah, his Ray last Quinn's name. Uh, brother-in-law. Yeah, Mustin. Mustang, nice guy. Um, was <laughs> he? He had Jerry in a headlock, and Tally and I had to carefully unwind this. And it was all because of that bill, because Jerry wanted to present a bill. This was a bill being pushed by the Legislative Black Caucus at the time to bring all the candidates to the floor of the House. Listeners only on Bourbon in the Back Room, can you hear about the fights that occurred in the back room of the General Assembly? Maybe if they'd have drank a little more bourbon, it wouldn't have happened. Well, the funny thing (laughs) is is that um, that was the same year. It was only a few weeks after the famous Janet Jackson um, wardrobe malfunction at the uh, Super Bowl. Where are you going with this? I'll tell you in a second. It was only a few weeks after that, and I had a reporter call me, and they said at that time, Representative Lurie, we understand you were in the room. Can you tell us what happened? I said it was just a conversation malfunction. All, <laughs> <laughs> All right, Shane, let's 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 move from uh, the judiciary to some issues that you guys are facing. We had Speaker of the House Merle Smith on the show last week. He said that one of the House's top priorities would be bills focused on vouchers or school choice, take your pick as to how you want to call it. But what's the Senate talking about doing in the in the field of education? Yeah, yeah, the uh, it's school choice is what it is. <laughs> um, but, but so this is this was the issue that the Senate started with this this year. Okay. Um, and uh, in, in fact, we uh, we had a lot of conversation about it today. Today, we were talking earlier about how, how we try to run things. So I'll tell you, in in two years, the last two years, we've invoked cloture one time. 
well, two times today was one of them. Really? Um, we had to do it today because we're in a situation where you really got one senator yeah. who's just kind of, right. he just doesn't want it to happen. And I get it. Who is that? Um, it's Senator Mike Fanning from sure. up in Fairfield. And, and there are lots of others who, who disagree with it, but it's the same amendments over and over right. and over again. And at some point, the Senate's got to move on. But what we have right now is a bill that would create education scholarship accounts. It would provide up to $6,000 scholarships for children who are in poverty. Really, Medicaid eligible. Okay. So if you're eligible for Medicaid, which, and this is a sad statement, but it's about 60% of our yeah. student population yeah. in the public schools. Sadly. Um, it would give them that scholarship that they could then choose to use at private schools or even at a public school in a different district. Didn't the House pass this last year and y'all just ran out of time? Because this was the bill that Merle was talking about, right? Uh, he was talking about I don't recall if they passed in the House they, or not. So the, the Senate... The Senate passed a bill last year. The House passed a, There were different versions. The House right. wanted to do a pilot program that was much more limited. Ours was more expansive. And then when it went to conference committee, it kind of morphed. Sure. Shane, do you recall how much this costs? Uh, it, up to $90 million. Okay. So when it's fully phased in, it would be up to 15,000 students at $6,000. How about— uh, So you cap out—excuse me, real quick, though. Mm -hmm. That's important. It's not a pilot program, but you're still capping it at 15,000 students. So it, you can't have this mass exodus from the public school system. That, that's right. And, you know, and, and we spent a good bit of time in subcommittee looking at this. If you look at these programs in other states, like, you're not going to—you're probably not going to get 15,000 Sure, you won't kids. get that. Uh, yeah. So— um, Shane, how about homeschooling? Would would parents be able to pay themselves six thousand dollars? This does not allow use at homeschools. Although I'll tell you that there there was an amendment offered to create what's called a PACE scholarship um, that is now it's actually in a subcommittee meeting today, and there's going to be talk about that. It's a more expansive choice program that would allow for up to the way it was introduced would up to one thousand dollars for uh, homeschool students. Okay. Um, let's talk about some other issues. Um, wow. Just to tell our listeners a quick story, you know, I don't serve in the Senate anymore, Joel. And so Amy and I have been traveling a lot and I was boarding a plane last fall, uh, on the way to, uh, two weeks and in, where's this in one Alaska. Going? We went to Alaska. Okay. It was a great trip. Those of you who haven't been to Alaska, wonderful. Went, went all the way to the Arctic uh, you wake me circle. Up when he's done. Yeah. And I, Thought about Shane Massey. He, he rubbed this in. I'm familiar. <laughs> he rubbed this in on me. And I sent him a text and I said, I'm going to Alaska. What are you doing? Because I knew that they were going in to debate abortion for the 23rd time <laughs> that year and for a special session. So bring us up to speed on abortion yeah, in South Carolina, happen? Shane. Is there going to be a, a, a bill passed? We've talked a lot on this podcast about the Supreme Court decision on the six-week abortion um, ban and you know, we had Speaker Smith on last week. Does the legislature come to any agreement on anything over this? And I know you don't want to spend an entire legislative session debating this, and I know you won't. So what's going to happen? Yeah, so I think um, I think the legislature has to respond uh, to, to to the decision. And, and I think the legislature will respond. So I think there will be an effort to— um, to pass something because look the, the effect of that Supreme Court opinion was that abortion is now allowed without restriction up to twenty weeks, which was the law before the six week ban. That's right. Yeah, um, but I don't think there's any. There aren't a whole lot of people, regardless of your partisan affiliation, who think that five months is a reasonable time. Okay, right? I, mean, I, th I think there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who who think that's too much. It's um, 
Now, I, I expect that whatever the effort will be probably isn't going to get a whole lot of Democratic support. But, but I do think that there will be an effort to uh, respond to that Supreme Court opinion and to, to do something so, that more people support. So, Shane, I mean, the Supreme Court, this is the state Supreme Court for our listeners we're talking about, who struck down the six-week ban because there's actually a privacy provision in the South Carolina Constitution. They based it on that. Regardless of the, the, the legal uh, part of that, Shane, they kind of telegraphed to the legislature, hey, six weeks is too short, but if you come back with another uh, a lengthier time, that it probably would be considered constitutional. So in my mind, knowing the body, seems like you may be stuck in a little bit of a difficult position. You know, you have some hardcore Republicans who may not vote for, exactly say, a 12-week yeah. uh, uh, a ban after 12 weeks because they think it's too long. And then if you have all the Democrats vote against you. So in the old days, a, a moderate group of Democrats and a moderate group of Republicans would have come together and we would have agreed on, you know, whatever we thought was reasonable, both sides saying, I wish it was a little bit different. But that's not what you have now. Will you able, be able to build a coalition to find that? that Something meeting? between six and 20? Yeah, yeah that's kind of the Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. All five Supreme Court justices wrote different opinions, and they all disagreed yeah. in yeah. many respects on, on what the law <clears throat> ought to be. Um, so that, that makes it a little more difficult for us to figure out where's the roadmap. Um, but, but you're right. But I'll say this, too, that when we passed Heartbeat in 2021, those coalitions existed then, and we were able to get a strong group. We had we had thirty votes in the Senate, and, it, and we and that we lost one Republican, and we picked up one Democrat who voted for the heartbeat bill in the Senate. And that's the six week bill we're talking about, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's commonly referred to as six week bill. Okay. So that and that might, was one of one of Justice Few's main main disagreements was when does six when does it start? Right, we don't. Know, but so, but but that coalition might vote for a twelve weeks or eight weeks or a fourteen. So I, I tell you, I think I think twelve weeks probably isn't going to happen. And, and the reason is, if you look at the DHEC statistics, over ninety nine percent of abortions are performed within the first trimester. Right. So twelve weeks, the first trimester is effectively not doing anything. Um, and there were other things that the justices looked at that I know you might be able to play with. I mean, six weeks may be okay if you. Adjust some of the ah, other things that they were concerned uh-huh. about. So, but but you're right too that there is going to be a debate because there are some folks who who don't want to compromise mm-hmm. on that issue. That's what all the fall was all about. Right, but the long and the short of it is, you predict the legislature will pass legislation relating to abortion this year. I think so. All right. Wow. And I, and that's I, that's and interesting. And I don't think year. it'll take all. I don't think it'll take all session to get it done. Only yeah, that, if, only on bourbon in the back room to listeners learn about things like that. Uh, let's shift to. I want to talk about. Um, you talked about this recently, um, and that's an interesting prediction, by the way. I, I would not have put <laughs> my money likes there. Prediction, yeah, I mean, he I just, he I just, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch. It'll give us some a uh, lot of lot of things to talk about. Shane, you've talked about you. You know started your career on the Judiciary Committee. And, um, you know, um, I, when I had the opportunity to come off Judiciary and go to finance and, and leave Senator Jake Knotts and Gerald Malloy to debate amongst themselves, I was quick <laughs> to do it, okay? But you've talked a lot about, um, you've always been a friend of law enforcement. Talk to us a little bit about fentanyl and catch and release and how some of that could make a big difference this year. Yeah, so the, those are at the at the top of our agenda as well that we want to talk about. I mean, look, when, when we finish education scholarship accounts, we're probably going to talk about some healthcare issues with certificate of need, which is a process you're familiar with. And then our plan was very shortly thereafter to deal with fentanyl and some 
bond reform. Okay. Um, fentanyl, as you know, look, there, there are way too many people who are dying from fentanyl overdoses, and most of the time they don't even know that they're ingesting fentanyl. Uh, and and what is that? I mean, for for people that don't really understand, is that something that that something is laced with? I mean, I'm lots of times that's what happens, okay. right? I mean, lots of times they may think that they're smoking marijuana, but the marijuana has been laced with fentanyl. Okay, and and it's fatal. Um, and, and our laws on that are I mean, we just haven't caught up with it. Sure, with the with the with fentanyl, and so this is something we've talked about last year. We didn't quite quite make it across the finish line, but I think we're going to try to push on this hard, to really to try to get at these dealers. Yeah, it's a problem. It's a real, real problem. It's a problem, man. Yeah, yeah it really is. And so I want to talk about bond reform because yeah. well, you know, know, before we do that, yeah. while we're on that topic, yeah. um, medical cannabis. You passed it in the Senate last year. Will we see it pass again this year? Um, there was some. There's been some conversation about trying to bring that up again. <clears throat> I just hope uh, I hope we don't have a three week debate like we had yeah. on it last year. But it was a, I mean it was a first impression right. thing on the floor. Um, it was pretty incredible that we even got it to the floor. Yeah, uh, probably couldn't have happened a few years back, but it, right. it it happened now, and we had a really good conversation about it. I think if it comes up, I think with the Senate would likely pass it again. But don't um, you think it needs to come in the House based on the Tommy Pope ruling now? Well, it is, and that was a bad ruling. Yeah. Um, th- th- there's still some bitterness about yeah, that. Just to remind sure. our listeners, the, the bill passed the I Senate. I think I heard you speak about that And uh, the Speaker Pro Tem, who was presiding in the House of Representatives on the cannabis bill, ruled that it was out of order, said that it was a revenue-raising bill and could only originate in the House, which really had not happened before on a bill like that. So, Shane, if the Senate is presented with a bill that's substantially similar similar to what they saw last year, they likely move it on to the House again? I mean, it's a, except for one member, it's the same makeup uh-huh. in the Senate as it was last year. Um, so I mean, that would be my expectation. So we asked Speaker Smith about this uh, last uh, week, a couple weeks ago, Joel, if you recall, and, and he was noncommittal. I think he said that they would be likely debating it, and he pointed to law enforcement as the biggest hurdle, I think. Uh, is that still true, Shane? Yeah, it is. I mean, like, and I'll tell you, this was a tough one for me because law enforcement has some pretty <clears throat> pretty persuasive arguments on it. You know, on, on the other hand, I would much rather a person in pain be able to use non-addictive marijuana as opposed to opioids. Right? Sure, exactly. Um, and that's the argument that Tom makes. Right, Tom I mean, it's, it's, it's tough, right? You got, but now you also want to make sure that it actually be used for that. Sure. Right? Um, because, you know, the last thing we need is a bunch of stoned people running around everywhere. Um, they but, they but, usually sit or lay around. Yeah, probably. That's probably right. But, <laughs> and eat Fritos. <laughs> we have enough issues with workforce anyway, you know. So, um, All right. But, uh, but I, I think I think if it comes back in the substantially similar form, that the Senate would probably do something similar to what it did last year. All right. Talk to us about bond reform. My, my good friend, Sheriff Leon Lott, has been yep. in the paper and on TV Dozens of times complaining about what he calls catch and release. Break that down for our listeners, Senator. Well, what what the sheriff is complaining about is people who who get arrested for any sort of crime, they and they get a bond mm-hmm. and they get out, and then they'll get arrested again for something else, and they get another bond, and then they get arrested again, and they get another bond. Governor McMaster gave an example out of Spartanburg, I think, last night in the State of the State address, where it talked about a guy who was arrested, and we're not talking about like simple possession of marijuana. I mean, there was domestic violence and there were some pretty violent activities. I think he was arrested four times before he finally killed his pregnant girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was arrested four times and released three times before he finally killed his pregnant girlfriend. Um, but, you know, this is something, Joel, that we've been hearing about all over the state. And, mm-hmm. and, and Sheriff Lott has been pretty vocal about it. 
a number of other sheriffs have been talking about it. And, and these are both Democrats and Republicans. Absolutely. How are, do we yeah. fix it? Well, standard standardized bond um standardized bonds, how do we fix it? Well, I mean that, that that's I think that's one thing that's going to be looked at because right now our law gives a lot of discretion to the judges based on the situation. And there are people who will make some very persuasive arguments that you ought to do that. You ought to give the judges discretion because each, each case is different. different. It is. Yeah. Um, however, like we can't have repeat violent offenders getting released right. multiple times. I mean, you just can't That's do that. That's inexcusable. You can't have because bad things are going to happen, and they have. Uh, so I think we're going to have to look at the discretion part of that. You're going to maybe you put limitations like if you've got a bond and you get out and you and you violate the bond you don't get out yeah and maybe yeah. or maybe you instruct the court specifically to look at uh repeat offenders in a sure. different category than 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 uh first time offenders and that's, and that's well, i think sort of the, the rub is in it right that, that's the problem i think it's the repeat offenders yeah. um I, mean, I i don't think sheriff lott is complaining about somebody who gets arrested gets a bond get, gets out and then they don't have any problems with this person until the trial comes up. What, what, what I hear them complaining about are people who are repeatedly arrested and given a bond every time, and they keep committing crimes. It's an insult to the victims and to the community at large. And, and, and law I, enforcement. And, I mean, they get very no frustrated yeah, yeah. by and, that. I mean, it, and, and I just really wish you guys good luck on this, you men and women of the legislature, because I think it's it's a reform way past due. Senator, um, I got one loaded question for you, but before we I ask you that, um, any other issues over there percolating that we haven't talked about? We've talked about certificate of needs, school choice, abortion, judicial reform, anything that we need to keep on our radar? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, this is something we talk about every year, but workforce development is, is a real challenge. I mean, it, employers, whether they be large or small, are struggling finding people to work for them. To do the to do the jobs that are out there, and you know we've been doing a really good job over the last 10, 12, 15 years of recruiting industry to the state. South Carolina really has been kicking tail on that, um, but we've gotten to the point where everybody's struggling to find workers, and so we're going to have to do some things to help help with that um, to to ensure that South Carolinians have the opportunity to get the skills, training, and education they need to compete for those jobs so that we don't have to bring them in from out of state. Absolutely. I, I, we're going to wrap this up, Shane. I'm going to give you one thought, which is the best way to have a workforce that can work those jobs is to keep young people in South Carolina because right now they tend to leave, whereas mm-hmm. the people who move here tend to be retired senior citizens. We're losing a lot of talent, a lot of our young talent. And it's making us more Republican. I just want to say that. <laughs> Senator Massey, last question for you. Um, we have not had an open governor's seat since 2010 when my friend Vincent Shaheen ran against, at that time, Representative Actually, Nikki Haley. Actually, she ran against me. Yeah, I she was ran senator, and right. In fact, I found an old picture I'll show you of the three of us right after the primary. Uh, we took a picture, but there are a lot of names floating around. Um, John Warren from the upstate, um, Alan Wilson, Attorney General. This is three, year, three and a half I'm years telling, now. But people what are you are, doing? I'm telling you, people are talking about it. Senator Davis from Beaufort. Anybody talking about this other than you? No. Yes, no, absolutely not. But I want to know about Shane Massey. Is Shane Massey a name that we should keep an eye on for the 2026 gubernatorial race? I don't know, man. You know, I've, I've always approached these things and you see what, what doors the good Lord opens for you. But but I, I um, like I'm, I'm planning to run for the Senate again next year. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I may have missed my window, but, um, you know, I've been blessed by serving in the Senate. I represent some really cool people and I've been able to do do some do some important things and I appreciate that opportunity and I, I don't know that I want to screw that up. Fair enough. You could 
use the, the slogan that I adopted for Vincent in 2010, Shaheen for governor, putting the goober back in gubernatorial. <laughs> <laughs> Shane Massey, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Joel, tell us about our longtime sponsor, Lexington Medical Center. Lexington Medical Center has provided the highest quality care to our friends, families, and neighbors throughout the Midlands for more than 50 years. As the best hospital in the Columbia metro region, Vincent, and the second best hospital in South Carolina, according to U.S. News & World Report, Lexington Medical Center, you'll find the most advanced medicine, state-of-the-art technology, and compassionate care right when you need it. All right. Thank you, Lexington Medical Center. Okay, we're back. Um, Vincent, second time we've had Senator Massey on the show. And, you know, he's got a tough job. I mean, chief cat herder of a Republican (laughs) caucus in the Senate is a very, very powerful body, obviously. Um, But it's always great to catch up with him. It is, oddly enough, his job got harder when more Republicans got elected. There's a sweet spot. When there's just a couple more Republicans than Democrats, it's really hard to be the majority leader because you have to try to keep every one of your troops together. When you have a, you know, fair majority but not overwhelming, it's probably the sweet spot because you don't have the right wing running things. You know, you have to compromise, work things out. But now he's got such an overwhelming majority, it's probably harder to be uh, the Republican majority leader. He's done a good job of trying to keep decorum in the Senate, of trying to keep process, of trying not to let it just be like mob rules. Uh, but I would think it's it's a pretty tough thing. Shane— as you know, is smart. He works hard, Joel. Um, you and I worked with him on some issues together, and he and I butted heads on some really big things before. But he was very mad at you over the roads bill, he, I remember. He yeah. definitely did not like the gas tax, fought hard against uh, what I was trying to do. Um, but, you know, we're friends, and, oh, and sure. that's the way and, the world and, and works. And that's the way it should work. Yeah. But you can disagree and, and still be friends. Interesting to hear him talk about where things could land on school choice on bond reform, but I was really fascinated that he thinks they're going to get an abortion bill out because I think there's, you know, if you look at what happened in the debate last year, even before the Supreme Court, there were people all over the place. So it's going to be real interesting to see if if the House and Senate come together. But Vincent, our listeners can only hear the Senate Majority Leader in his own words on what podcast? Bourbon in the Back Room. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bourbon in the Back Room is produced by Jonathan Valladares, Campbell Douglas, and Austin Shaheen, directed by Holly Van Horn.